Hello friends, and welcome to Superstitions, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Alastair Murden. Our everyday lives are full of strange rituals and irrational beliefs, ones developed decades, even centuries ago, but still show up in our modern world. On this show, we explore superstitions through short stories and seek to answer why we believe these little habits could bring us luck, protect us from misfortune, or even ward off death itself. Which brings us to today's topic. We are gathered here today to bear witness to a superstition relevant at the end of one's life. In the heart of the American Midwest, it is said that the first person to leave a funeral will be the next person to die. And so, those in attendance wait to leave until some poor soul wanders out before them, becoming a sacrificial lamb for all their fellow guests. It's a macabre ritual done both out of respect and fear of the dead. And let's admit it, we're all a little afraid of death. No one enjoys facing their own mortality, and that's exactly what funerals make us do. Whenever we attend one, we're forced to confront the fact that we are indeed going to die one day. But perhaps our superstitions can help ensure that that day doesn't come too soon. And so we must be fastidious in observing them, lest the deceased drag us to the grave too. Today, I'm going to tell you a story from some time ago, 1953 to be exact, of how a disregard for superstition did exactly that. Now, brothers and sisters, please rise as we're about to begin the service. You can find episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Coming up, we return home to Iowa to bury a not-so-beloved father. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Kit sat in the back of the Greyhound bus, staring out the window at the passing landscape. He'd never been much of a reader, but the trip from Los Angeles to Iowa was long, and his boredom made the two-day ride feel more like a week. Kit would have killed for a magazine, but instead, he kept his eyes on the changing scenery. He watched as the desert became mountains and then gave way to flat prairie, fields of yellow as far as the eye could see under an endless blue sky. The sight filled him with dread. He hadn't been home for the better part of a decade, 
The day after his high school graduation, he hopped on a bus with nothing but a duffel bag and didn't look back. There was nothing for him there but a dead-end town and his deadbeat father. So Kit went to Hollywood and made it. Well, sort of. He'd been in a couple of one-reelers and even a supporting role in a horror movie. A B-horror movie. But still, his agent Marty had faith in him. The next Marlon Brando, he said. Never mind that Brando was starring in Streetcar Named Desire while Kit was working nights as a parking lot attendant. Marty had a big audition for him the next week. Kit was preparing for it all month, researching, running his lines. He even dyed his blonde hair black for the part. But then he got the telegram from his aunt Nan. Kit's father, Walter, was dead. And the funeral was three days before his audition. Kit looked down at the yellow paper in his hands. He'd been staring at it the whole trip in disbelief. For as long as he could remember, he'd been wishing his dad would drop dead. Now, it had finally happened. Kit was pulled from his thoughts as the Greyhound squealed to its final stop. He stepped off the bus and into a gravel lot. It was June and it felt like it. The air was heavy, buzzing with cicadas. He could practically smell the humidity. A car honked nearby and Kit whipped around. He knew that horn. Sure enough, behind him was Aunt Nan, leaning out the window of her rusty pickup. Well, I'll be. Is that Elvis or is that my Kit? Kit beamed and made his way over. Hate to disappoint you, ma'am, but it ain't Elvis. Nan jumped from the truck and hugged him tight. She'd aged in the years since he last saw her. Her dark bun was almost all grey now. She felt tiny in his arms, like she might break. Nan pulled back and took his face in her hands. You sure are a sight for sore eyes, kid, she said, beaming. Now let's go. I've got handballs waiting for supper. That evening at Nan's house, Kit sat at the table, an old tabby cat in his lap, as Nan rummaged in the kitchen. Can I get you something to drink, darling? Whiskey? No thanks. Gave up booze a while ago. Nan sat down across from him and gave him a wry look. Do they not drink in Hollywood now? You telling me Humphrey Bogart is over there sipping Ovaltine? Kit chuckled. Nah, <laughs> just me. I don't drink on account of my father being a nasty drunk. Nan's smile faltered. Mm, ain't that the truth? But you're nothing like your daddy. She paused, peering closely at him. I have to say, though, with that dark hair, you sure do look like him like having a ghost in my kitchen. Her words sent a chill up Kit's spine. She continued, My eyes ain't what they used to be, but it's uncanny, truly. Walter was a good-looking man. It was the meanness that made him ugly. And that hat. He wore that Stetson day and night. Sometimes I thought he slept in the darn thing. Kit mumbled, I wonder if he'll be buried in it. Nan took a drink. Well, 
You'll have to tell me if he is. Kit looked at her, puzzled. Nan explained that she wouldn't be attending the funeral. She'd had enough family buried in that cemetery. Too many bad memories. Kit tried reasoning with her. You could just come for the service and leave before the burial. You wouldn't have to step foot in the cemetery. Aunt Nan scoffed. You might as well have me sit on the tracks and wait for the train to run me over. Kit gave her a confused look. Nan sighed. Did I not teach you nothing? The first fool who leaves a funeral is also the first one to die. Everyone knows that. She took another sip of whiskey, her voice serious. No, I'll be staying right here with my shotgun loaded and ready. I don't want to give Walter any chance to take me to the grave with him. But I am glad someone will be there to make sure that mad dog of a man stays in the dirt. She looked at Kit, her eyes sad. I'm just sorry for you. You don't owe him a thing after how he treated you. Kit sighed. I guess not. But I also wanted to see you. I've missed you. Nan smiled. And I missed you. Kit continued. But I'm afraid I won't be here too long. I have to head out after the funeral. I've got a big audition back in LA. Nan's face fell. Feeling a pang of guilt, Kit hurried to lift her spirits. But don't you worry, it's going to be my big break. So when I'm rich and drinking Ovaltine with Bogey, I'm going to get a mansion and I'm going to bring you out to live with me. She chuckled softly. <laughs> as long as you'll let me have my whiskey. Kit woke up the next morning to sunshine streaming through the bedroom windows. He groaned, shielding his eyes, and turned over. As he did, he found himself staring at his father's face. Kit sat up with a start. On the nightstand was a family photo he hadn't noticed before. Kit, Aunt Nan, his mother, and Walter on Christmas morning. Kit was just a little boy then, four, maybe five. The picture had been taken just a few years before his mother died and before his father lost himself in the bottom of a bottle. But what spooked him most was the fact that the picture shouldn't exist. After Kit's mother died, Walter had burned all the family photos. This was the first picture he'd seen of them in 15 years, and they looked happy. Kit took a last glance, then turned the photo face down on the nightstand. It took some prodding, but Kit eventually convinced Nan to let him do some chores around the farm, or what was left of it. The property was a mess of weeds and overgrown bushes, as if the wilderness was slowly swallowing it up. He was hacking some tree branches that had grown into the barn when a sedan drove up the gravel road. It was Pastor John. The pastor was a tall, thin man, sporting a modest suit and carefully combed grey hair. He strode over, smiling in a sympathetic way that made Kit's skin crawl. Kit Johnson. What a surprise. I came to talk to your aunt about tomorrow, but 
Seeing as you're back in town, perhaps we can discuss matters. Kit reluctantly agreed. I know it's been a difficult time for you and Nan, the pastor began. Losing family unexpectedly is always difficult. Kit snorted. I wouldn't say always. Pastor John peered at Kit through his round spectacles. Your father was a hard man, but he was a good man deep down. Walter was just dealing with some demons. We all are. Kit's voice grew sharp. I know what kind of man my father was. The two walked in a heavy silence. It was a long time before the pastor spoke again. Are you staying long? Kit shook his head. I'm catching a bus back tomorrow after the funeral. Pastor John nodded. Kit could practically hear him picking his next words. You know, your aunt won't admit it, but she's got no one but you. And at her age, you may want to consider staying, at least for a while. Kit's jaw tightened. I'm getting my career figured out, Pastor. When I do, and it'll be soon, I'll send for Nan. I can take care of my own unlike my father. The pastor looked at Kit. I'm sure you will. I just pray she has the time to wait. Kit felt anger rise in his chest, but before he could say a word, he spotted Aunt Nan standing on the front porch, her hand on her hip. Why, Pastor John, I thought you'd given up on converting us heathens. The pastor chuckled. Oh, I'm never giving up on you, Nancy. But today, I've come to discuss arrangements for tomorrow. For Walter. Nan's smile fell. I won't be there. Kit here will be representing the Johnson clan. What's left of it? The pastor turned to Kit. I suppose we best discuss the eulogy then. I've prepared one I can share with you. Kit felt himself speak up before the pastor could continue. Actually, pastor, I'd like to give the eulogy tomorrow, if you don't mind. The next day, the sun had disappeared. Dark clouds hung low in the blue-gray sky. Nan sniffed the air as she helped Kit with his tie. Smells like rain. You best drive slow in my truck. She doesn't handle like she used to. Kit smiled. Yes, ma'am. And don't be caught leaving first, neither. You remember what I said about that? Nan straightened the knot on his tie and raised an expectant eyebrow. Kit replied dutifully, I know, I know. First one to leave is the next one to die. Nan nodded. That's right. So I don't want to see you here until... After 2 p.m., you hear? After 2 p.m., alive, and with my truck in one piece. Kit stooped to kiss her on the cheek and grinned. I promise. If I'm not back, you can assume the old man dragged me to the grave too. Nan looked him dead in the eye. That ain't nothing to joke about. The dead love company. 
An hour later, Kit found himself sitting in the front row of the town chapel. Behind him stretched rows of pews sparsely populated by a handful of church regulars. He figured they'd attended out of pity, or habit. If they actually knew Walter, they wouldn't have come. In front of Kit, sitting before the altar, was his father's casket. Open. Walter lay in a state of peaceful repose. He didn't look like the angry man who just as soon slug Kit as look at him. He was shrunken and pale and serene. It was strange to see his father this way. It seemed dishonest. Except for one thing. Resting on his chest, clasped in his pale, dead hands, was that old Stetson hat. Kit couldn't believe it. He laughed aloud, earning confused looks from the church regulars. Then, Pastor John stepped behind the altar. Friends, we have gathered in our grief to pray to God that he might shepherd the soul of our brother, Walter Henry Johnson, to Jesus Christ. May in pain we find comfort, in sorrow, hope, and in death, resurrection. Let us pray. Kit mumbled along, his eyes trained on his father's casket. He couldn't stand seeing him lie peacefully in a box while strangers pretended he was a decent human being. Kit felt his blood go hot. Pastor John cleared his throat. <clears throat> now, Walter's son, Kit, would like to say a few words. Kit took a breath and climbed behind the podium. Thank you, Pastor. Kit's heart pounded in his chest as uneasy silence filled the chapel. Then, he found his next words. They say grief is the price we pay for love. Well, today I find myself sorely in debt, because I have no grief for Walter Johnson. Kit saw Pastor John's mouth fall open in shock. He continued his eulogy. As far as I'm concerned, Walter's been dead a long time. My father didn't give me anything. Not guidance, not wisdom, but especially not love. He only took and took. So today, I'll be taking something for myself. At that, Kit stepped off the podium to the casket and grabbed the hat off his father's corpse. The chapel erupted in gasps as Pastor John scrambled to cue the organ. Kit just smiled, walked down the aisle and out the door. But as he left, an involuntary chill went up his spine. He could have sworn that as he grabbed the hat, Walter's corpse was grinning. Coming up, Kit comes home for good. 
Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast Network, and I'm thrilled to tell you that this month marks a huge milestone for us. It's the four-year anniversary of a podcast I host called Serial Killers. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the stories and psychology behind the most nightmarish murderers of all time, why wait? There's no better time than right now to start listening. Each week, we enter the minds, the methods, and the madness of the world's most sadistic serial killers. From the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and the co-ed killer, Edmund Kemper, to Eileen Warnos, Ed Gein, and coming soon, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. And this February, look out for our four-part special on couples who kill, following the worst love has to offer. Their names may sound ordinary, but their atrocities are anything but. You do not want to miss it. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. New episodes air every Monday and Thursday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. Kit walked out the chapel doors and into the church parking lot, beaming, his dad's old Stetson hat in hand. He'd been waiting to give Walter a piece of his mind for 20 years, and though his father may have been dead, telling him off at his own funeral was almost as good. Kit had never felt so free. He breathed in the warm summer air and sighed, looking up at the sky, just as a crack of thunder boomed around him. The clouds opened up, releasing a downpour of heavy rain. Kit ducked under the awning of the church, deciding what to do next. He couldn't drive Nan's decrepit old truck in a storm. No doubt he'd end up in a ditch somewhere. No, he'd have to wait it out. Kit looked across Main Street and caught a familiar sight. Murphy's Lounge, the local bar. Well, he thought, if he was going to have a drink, this seemed like the day to do it. He'd pour one out for the old man at his former watering hole, raise a glass to him burning in hell for eternity. He readied himself to run through the rain, raising his father's hat to his head. But as he did, something fluttered out of the old Stetson and landed on the wet pavement. Kit picked it up, turning it over in his hand, then froze. It was a photograph, the same one he'd found at Nan's house. Kit, as a little boy, with Aunt Nan, his mother, and Walter on Christmas morning. But this photo was faded and worn, as if from years of handling. And Kit saw something he hadn't noticed before. In the picture, Walter was beaming, holding little Kit in his lap. And Kit was wearing his hat. Kit's breath caught in his throat. His eyes stung. Then, for the first time since Walter died, he began to cry. Back at the farm, Nan looked at the rain pouring outside her window and worried. She had been determined to keep her mind off Walter's funeral. She'd had an awful feeling about it for days now and was anxious for him to be buried for good. 
and then Kit hadn't come home. 2 p.m. came and went, then three, then four, then five. The bad feeling grew worse with each hour that passed. She listened for the rumble of her old truck making its way down the road, but there was only the rain pounding on the roof. As night fell, Nan could feel it in her bones. Kit wasn't coming back, and she was sure Walter was the reason why. Meanwhile, Kit was waiting out the storm at Murphy's Lounge. He sat at the end of the bar, his father's hat on the counter, and the worn photograph in his hand. As the storm raged outside, he stared at the picture. No matter how many hours passed, or how many gins he downed, he still couldn't believe it. All these years, Kit thought his father had burned all the photographs, but he had kept this one close the whole time, every single day, for decades. And Kit had never known, until now. Maybe Walter wasn't the monster Kit thought he was. Maybe he was just a man who'd failed and let his problems swallow him whole. And that photo told Kit that he'd known it. He'd known what he lost and was sorry. Kit set down the photo and shook his head. What was he doing? Walter didn't deserve his sympathy. He'd worked so hard to crawl out of the hell his father had created, and now Walter had dragged him back. No, Kit wasn't going to give him anything, and he wasn't staying either. He had a bus to catch tomorrow morning and a big audition. A life-changing audition. Walter wasn't going to ruin that for him too. Kit took a last drink and asked the bartender for his tab. Then he put on the hat. As he did, he heard someone enter the bar behind him. Jesus Christ! Walter? Is that you? Kit flinched and turned around. A middle-aged man was standing behind him. His face was already flushed from booze, and his eyes were wide with fear. Walter's six feet under, I'm afraid. I'm his son, Kit. Kit reached out his hand to introduce himself, but the man just stood, frozen. Then he doubled over in a fit of laughter. Kit watched, baffled by this reaction. After a few moments, the man finally recovered, catching his breath. <laughs> Here I thought Walter had climbed from his grave for one last drink. You sure look like your old man. Following in his footsteps too, I see. The man gestured to the empty glasses lined up on the bar. Kit felt his face go hot with anger. He stood up to leave and suddenly felt the alcohol take hold. He was unsteady on his feet, his mind swimming. Where are you going, son? If you were anything like Walter, you'd stay till closing. Kit turned to the man, his voice low. I'm nothing like him, and I'm not staying. I've got a bus out of town tomorrow morning. Kit walked toward the door, trying to steady his legs. But the drunk man followed him, angry now. You think you're better than he was, huh? 
Just because you're getting out of town? Kit kept walking, and the man got louder. I know your family, boy. You got an old aunt here, all alone. Your daddy may have been a drunk, but at least he never abandoned his own flesh and blood. Kit walked out the door and into the rain, the man's voice trailing after him. Then he paused, not knowing what to do next. It was dark now, and he was far too drunk to drive. No, he'd walk home. It was what he deserved. Kit made his way toward Aunt Nan's. As he walked a weaving path down the road, his mind kept coming back to what the drunk man had said. Kit had never thought he was abandoning Nan. No, he'd gone to escape Walter. But Nan was all alone here. And here he was about to leave her again, abandoning the only family he had left in the world. For an audition. Walter felt so disgusted with himself, he thought he might throw up. Or maybe that was the booze. Regardless, he knew what he had to do. He spotted a payphone gleaming under a lamppost, stumbled over, and dialed his agent's number. The call rang and rang, then went to the answering machine. Kit spoke loudly over the rain, trying not to slur his words. Marty, it's Kit. Look, I'm not going to make it Tuesday. And, uh... Not for a while after that. I've got things to take care of here at home. Kit hung up and walked down the road, feeling lighter than he had in years. He whistled to himself, practically skipping as he went, until he lost his balance and toppled over into a ditch. He sat there, soaking wet and covered in mud, and laughed, before rising shakily to his feet. He couldn't wait to see the look on Nan's face when he came home. Kit continued his winding path through the downpour, moving his leaden legs as fast as they would carry him. It must have been around 10pm when he thought he was lost. He worried that in his drunkenness he'd gone the wrong direction when he saw the yellow glow of Nan's porch light peering out of the darkness. He squinted through the rain and spotted her dark silhouette standing there. Kit smiled. He knew she would wait up for him. He felt fresh tears form in his eyes. He was all she had. Here she was, staying up, probably worried sick. Kit hurried faster toward the house, stumbling as he ran. But as he moved closer, he could see something strange about her shadow. What was that she was clutching in her hands? His heart jumped in his chest. He waved at her, hollering that it was him. It was Kit. His voice was drowned in the rain, but he heard Nan's clear as day. She yelled, Don't come any closer, Walter. I'm warning you. Kit heard her words, but their meaning did not reach his legs in time. It was raining too hard, his mind too foggy. A moment later, 
something heavy caught him in the chest, and he went sprawling across the wet grass, and his father's Stetson fell beside him. One week later, Nan found herself exactly where she swore she'd never set foot again, in the town cemetery, burying yet another member of her kin. But this time, there were no more Johnsons left to attend in her stead. In fact, there was no one there at all, just her and Pastor John. Nan stood staring at Kit's fresh grave as the pastor uttered his last prayer. Then there was silence. After a long moment, he put a gentle hand on Nan's shoulder. You ready, Nancy? She looked up at him and smiled. After you, pastor. In the 1950s, folk historian Waylon D. Hand documented a peculiar behavior at Iowa funerals. After the service, mourners would stand around and wait, and wait, until someone left first. Only then would the rest of the attendees feel comfortable leaving themselves because as we know, they believed that the first person to leave would be the next to die. This notion is just one of many myths surrounding funerals that Waylon Hand documented. Some, like this one, are unique to the United States. But Hand explains that most originated in the Old World. And there, death has been fertile ground for superstition for thousands of years. Many superstitions evolve out of fear. And what's more universal than the fear of death? We dread the day those we love will die, and we're often too terrified to even fathom the end of our own existence. Existentialism aside, a large reason why we fear death is because we just don't understand it. One moment a person is alive, and the next they're simply not. It leaves us with big questions we can't answer. Mainly, where do they go? Or perhaps, did they leave at all? According to grief and bereavement expert Dr. Marilyn A. Mendoza, many superstitions about death developed around the belief that the dead are still among us, hoping to do us harm. She writes, it seems that no matter how good a person someone was or how much they were loved in life, upon their death they became an object of intense fear. So, out of anger, jealousy or loneliness, their spirits linger, waiting for an opportunity to drag us to the other side too. But superstitions give us a set of rules to follow that ensure we don't fall victim to envious spirits. And in turn, we're afforded a sense of control where we realistically have none. But whether our superstitions actually work is perhaps beside the point. As Wayland Hand himself said, it's not whether they're true or false, but people want to believe in something. Perhaps it's this strong desire of belief that gives superstitions their power. Take death, for instance. 
It's nothing but a natural bookend in our life cycle, just like birth. Yet our anxieties around the unknown make it frightening. But maybe the unknown isn't what we should be afraid of. Maybe it's superstitions themselves. Because maybe, just maybe, if we believe in them enough, we'll make them real. Thanks again for listening to Superstitions. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until next time, be wary of the things you cannot explain. Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Superstitions was written by Alex Garland, with writing assistance by Andrew Kelleher, fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Brian Petrus. I'm Alastair Murden. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Each week, join me and my co-host Greg for a deep dive into the minds and madness of history's most notorious murderers. You can binge hundreds of episodes, four years worth, and catch new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Listen to Serial Killers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.